let me pray and we're going we're gonna to dive right in. Let us pray. Father, we, uh, we pause and we're reminded that you brought us here, that you have us here, that you want us here, and that you're going to send us out from here. And if all those things are true, then we all ask for open ears to hear what you have to say. We ask for an open heart to receive it. And we ask for a willing mind to go and let you live your life through us so we might see the things that we hear come out in our lives. We beg you for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, some of you might be aware, uh, Kevin Ledoux, who's a member of our church, passed away yesterday. Uh, he passed away from leukemia. He'd been battling it for a few years. But keep him and his wife Amy and their two kids in your prayers, if you know them, even if you don't. Uh, we're going to come around them and care for them, just like we would anyone else. But brothers, i got to tell you, I don't know if I'm just more aware of it, or if it is more prevalent, but it feels like so many in our midst are struggling through, with, or dying from cancer. Just in the last couple months, uh, it's, it's been unbelievable for me as a pastor to hear case after case of people with various forms of cancer, young and old, from mouth cancer to brain cancer to leukemia to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma to colon cancer, and my own personal testimony, if I had time to share it this morning, involves cancer too. My sister had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. She was diagnosed when she was 15 and a half. And I was just a couple of years behind her. And God uh, rescued her through painful chemo and radiation. She's okay today. But there's just something so unbelievably prevalent. And I didn't intend to, to start that way. I actually heard about Kevin and Amy late last night, and it, it broke my heart, and it actually made what I intended to be the introduction to this talk even more uh, potent. I can't wait for the day, and this is what I'm praying for, when there's not just a way to curb cancer, but there's a way to, to cure it, because it's such a cursed disease, and it's so fickle, and it's so hard to narrow down, and it's so hard to treat. And there isn't a one-size-fits-all shoe that you can put on it and fix the problem. And there are uh, thousands of researchers and doctors working on this around the clock. Some of you are probably physicians and know just how prevalent of an issue this is and just how much research and time's going into it. Uh, I did a little research myself and was shocked. But this year, the National Cancer Institute estimates that one point 735 million new cases of cancer will be diagnosed in the United States alone. And they estimate, based on what's happened in the last five years, even with the progress that's been made, that 610,000 of those people will die from it. It's a monstrous number when it comes to disease. And according to their studies over the last five years, they say that 38%, 38%, of all men and women will be diagnosed with cancer at some point in their lives. 
That's crazy if you let it set in. If you think of ten people that you know and love, three to four of them are going to be diagnosed with some form of cancer at some point in their lives. And by that number, I know that many in this room might actually know this reality all too well. I want to be sensitive to that. You could be dealing with it right now with yourself or with someone that you know and love dearly. All I can say from saying that is that I can't wait for the day when there's a cure to such a cursed disease. I really can't wait for the day when no family has to go through what the Ledoux's are going through right now. And it makes you wonder, is, is there hope for such a cure? I read an article in my short amount of research that I did that was fascinating to me because there is possibly a cure that could come in the next decade from the strangest of places. You know what it is? Venom. Venom. There was an article that was called Venom May Hold the Cancer Cure. If you don't mind, I'm going to read a little bit of it because I think it's fascinating. It says this, It's ancient medicine with a sci-fi sounding twist. A scientist at the University of Illinois, last name Pan, and his team say they may have found a way to stop cancer cell growth according to a paper they presented at the American Chemical Society Conference. The work is in its very early stages, but it has shown success in stopping breast cancer and melanoma cell growth in lab tests. The technique uses nanotechnology to deliver a synthesized element similar to the venom that's found in bees, snakes, and scorpions. If I took a list of the top ten fears in this room, I'm certain that stinging winged insects, scorpions, and snakes would make the top ten. And yet, their venom may have healing powers. Ancient texts show doctors have used venom to treat ailments for years. So it's not really new. In 14 BC, the Greek writer Pliny the Elder described the use of bee venom as a cure for baldness. Just let that sit for a minute. Doctors used bee stings to treat the Emperor Charlemagne's gout in the 700s. I'll speed through that so no one has to confess to the gout. Traditional Chinese medicine has used frog venom to fight liver, lung, colon, and pancreatic cancers. And alternative doctors in Cuba have used scorpion venom to fight brain tumors. Pan's lab has developed a technique to separate out the important proteins and peptides in the venom so they can be used to stop cancer cell growth. And his lab found a way to synthesize these helpful cells. The synthetic material is then delivered to the cancer cells using nanotechnology. It bypasses, it camouflages past the healthy cells and is attracted to only the cancer cells. And so, in in other words, it's so tightly packed into this nanoparticle, this is way above my pay grade, but it doesn't leak out and it doesn't cause other problems. It attaches to the cancer scales, and these nanoparticles with the synthesized venom have been proven in labs to either slow down or potentially stop cancer cell growth and may ultimately stop cancer from spreading. So unlike 
chemotherapy, this, this more targeted technique would, in theory, only affect cancer cells. And if it's successful, you can see that this, this way of doing it, this natural agent found in venom, could become the basis for a whole legion of cancer-fighting drugs. I, I find that fascinating. Don't you think that's interesting? The venom is the potential cure. To say it differently, the curse is the cure. And if you are a physician with us today, you know that the medical world has known this for quite some time. If you look on your handout, you'll see two pictures, two images. They're two symbols. These are the most commonly used symbols for medical institutions across our country. A snake wrapped around a staff. We're not going to backtrack into Greek mythology, but the one on the left, the rod of Asclepius, and the one on the right, the Caduceus, they, they both show the symbol of a snake entwined on a staff for institutions that represent healing, that represent medicine. I think this is fascinating. To use the commonly held sign of evil and destruction to represent a hope for healing. For a snake to be the sign of healing. In strange ways, it's as if the curse is the cure. And in our narrative today that I'm about to read that's on your handout, you're going to see something similar. It's a story about healing. And it's from the venom of a snake. How backwards. What a strange design. But it's ultimately about healing from the dreaded curse of sin. And the snake bites that are taking place are meant to actualize, to realize what sin actually is and what sin actually does. And then to tell you that it does not have to bear the curse anymore. Its dreaded disease has hope. You can be free. You can be healed. You just have to gaze at the strange means that God's provided. And so let's look at the narrative. Numbers chapter 21. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He may take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Okay, let's, let's start with what is difficult and then let's move towards what's more obvious. Uh, the, the consequence of sin in this passage seems a little harsh, doesn't it? 
If you don't think so, let's, let's take a quick look. Okay, at least from a human perspective, to be bitten by venomous snakes based on what? Impatience. I've been impatient recently. Perhaps when I sped through the yellow light this morning on the way to get here on time. What about you? Have you been impatient in the last 48 hours? Perhaps with someone at work who didn't do what you asked? Perhaps with someone at work who's a superior who doesn't seem to recognize the contributions you're making? Perhaps with a child at home, maybe even a difficult child. We know, those of us who are fathers, that those are the most difficult ones to be patient with. Maybe it was with your girlfriend or your spouse. And you've heard those dreaded words, you just seem so impatient. Maybe it is when you're in your car. The speed limit is a suggestion. Right? We all know we all go five or six over because every friendly police officer gives you that measure of grace. But I've seen some of you drive. <laughs> Just kidding. You've probably seen me drive. Trying to get to the church on time. Sometimes not even that. I just don't want to be bothered with the slowness of someone who seems to have nowhere good to go in life. Right? You get it. They were impatient. And then their other sin in the passage is that they grumbled. I have grumbled recently that God's provision for me is not what I want it to be or not of the quantity that I want it to be. What about you? Have you grumbled that something's missing and God's holding out on you? Or, perhaps even worse, that He has given you good things, but you're not satisfied because you're over-desiring more of the same thing He's already given. God, thank You for my wife. Could you improve her from a 6 to a 10? If only she understood how right I am almost all the time, our marriage would be a lot easier. Right? It's ridiculous. But we feel that way. And sometimes we believe that way. We grumble. And when I look at this passage, and I read just these six verses... I'm confronted with the fact that these are Israel's obvious sins. It tells us in verse 4 that they are impatient. And then we see in verse 5 that they're grumbling about the water and the food. Impatience because they have been rerouted by the king of Edom. This 40-year journey through the wilderness could have been shortened if God had only made the king of Edom give them passage through the king's highway. Instead, they are going back down south toward the Red Sea from which they came. Would that make you impatient? 
And they're grumbling because the food and water provided by God are, are either not good enough, if you can imagine eating the same thing every day for decades, Filet mignon is not tasty after day 374. I'm sorry, I'm a steak guy. And they're grumbling about the food and water. It's just not what it should be in their eyes. Brothers, here's what I'm saying. We can find solidarity. Understanding. With the sins of the people of Israel. And as they voice their complaint and speak against God and Moses, this is the fifth time that type of phrase has been used. It's the first time when they have directly spoken against God. All of a sudden, fiery snakes appear and they begin biting the people. And we know they're venomous because, as it tells us, some of the people of Israel die from the poison. It seems too harsh. Doesn't it? But perhaps in the eyes of God, this is what sin does and what sin deserves. And perhaps God sees something that they don't quite see. Perhaps there's something about sin that's so significant and so real that we tend to minimize and dismiss. Perhaps this consequence, if seen through the eyes of God, is actually congruent and compatible and equitable to sin itself, no matter what the sin may be. That's what I'm asking you to consider in the next few moments. Because sometimes the concept of sin is it's difficult to describe or evaluate, especially when we start talking about our own, isn't it? We often talk about it or think about it this way, like it's an, it's an isolated thing. Uh, it's it's a, a singular problem that sometimes recurs, but it occurs at this point in time. And so when I talk about my sin, I will I'll point to that point in time when I did that thing. That's not the truth about sin. It does happen at a point in time, but it is never an isolated thing. Right? It's far more widespread than that. It's malignant. It grows from a place and spreads through a place. It's kind of like poison from a snake bite. It's not the bite itself that you should be most concerned about, but where the poison is going. Our sin is never an isolated event or issue. But sometimes even we may talk about it as isolated, we also tend to speak or think of our own sin as uh, an insignificant thing. And here's what I mean. that The size of the consequence on the back end of our particular sins, it, it's not large enough usually to warrant any kind of major action or change. I just told you I was impatient this morning. Do you know what the consequence has been? Me neither. Nothing. And so I'm likely to treat that impatience with a high amount of insignificance. Especially when I see that it's written in a page in a book that's ancient. That there's been people for centuries doing the same thing. Right? You see how I'm dismissing and minimizing it? 
Okay? And so what happens is we tend to think of these um, isolated incidents as paper cuts that simply just need a band-aid placed over them. When what I think God's trying to say from his perspective in this passage is that it's actually something lethally destructive that needs a magnificent cure. That that is the truth about the reality of sin. We, we know this from the beginning. God's warning whenever He first introduced even the idea of the possibility of sin was the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely you'll die. As a matter of fact, it says die, die. You will spiritually die. You will physically die. The actual expected consequence of sin is death. Because sin's goal is to kill you. And therefore, sin must die. There's such a close association between sin and the consequence of death. And so, if I asked this morning, uh, where are you tempted? Where are you falling? And how bad is it? All right, it's likely that some or even most of the answers I would receive if honesty was in the room would be something like this uh, lust, my cell phone, and it's not as bad as it used to be. It's true, but it's not truth. Right? Or, or I might be told um, anger. Uh, at home when my kids act up, and I only yell every now and then. But when I yell, it's, it's, it's more than a slight raising of the voice. But then if I asked a separate question, because there's some truth to that, but then if I ask, what do you think your lust or anger deserves? And you were honest about your gut level immediate response. It's likely that you would say something like a second chance. Or even more holistically, forgiveness. And do you see how potently we have been deceived? That's the exact opposite of what God says about sin. It doesn't deserve a second chance. It doesn't deserve forgiveness. Sin in its variety of forms, no matter how large or small we may see them to be, deserves death. Always death. Because sin seeks to destroy. Sin seeks to kill. Sin by its very essence is the opposite of life. And it's no wonder when we think the exact opposite of what God said about sin and warned about sin and knows about sin that we would think the perce or perceive that the consequences that we see associated with sin are just too harsh. Right? Sin is not isolated or insignificant. It's deadly and it deserves death. It spreads, it grows. It's like poison from a snake bite. It may come in one isolated area of life, but its intent is to spread and to destroy. 
It is malignant. It is not benign. It is a cancer that spreads. It grows. It intensifies. And so, what I'm trying to say is this. These, these fire-biting serpents are visible representations of the true power and prevalence of sin. They seem too harsh a consequence for impatience and grumbling, even if it is the fifth time. But what God's trying to do is to say, this is what sin is, and this is what sin does. It will bite you, and it will spread its poison. And some of you will die because that's its goal, its purpose. It's not to give you life. It's to take your life from you. And until we can realize that this is the potency and the prevalence of sin, we'll continue to see it as an inconsequential, insignificant, isolated thing. Let me put it differently. Why would we hope for a cure for something that we don't even notice? It's a silent killer. It's a quiet cancer. And in the same way where I started, where I, I would beg of God to help us find a cure. That's what this is intended to create in us. If that is true, God, what's the cure? And what we're going to see is, <laughs> it comes in the strangest of ways. Doesn't it? Look back at the passage. Can the curse actually be stopped? Can the people be healed? Look in verse 7. And the people came to Moses and they said, they're in confession mode, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord for us that He take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people and everyone who was bitten. I'm sorry, and Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. God asked Moses to build a bronze serpent while bronze serpents are biting his people. What a strange cure for the curse. I want you to build and erect a gigantic statue of the very thing that is killing the people. And then I want you to tell them that if they will turn their gaze and look at the gigantic statue I've asked you to erect for the people, that those who turn and look at the thing that seems to be killing them, they'll live. The curse is the cure. The curse is the cure. That which represents sin in its fullness becomes the passageway to healing. A gigantic statue of their own personal sin and shame on full display. Let me say it differently. It's almost as if their own personal sin must be enlarged and must be magnified to the size that it actually is. To the size of its actual consequence. So that they might turn their eyes and gaze and be healed. And that giant representation in some strange, mysterious way, takes on the sin of the people 
and in some strange, mysterious way, does an even more magnificent thing. Offers its healing to those who would look. What a double blessing to have the curse removed and to have healing given. So when this is lifted up, those who gaze at it in faith are going to be healed. I'm going to say that again. When this is lifted up, this is God's way that those who gaze at it in faith, they're going to be healed. And so it is with the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, the famous Israelite theologian and teacher, this is what He said. It's on your handout. No one has ascended into heaven, Nicodemus, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. But in order that the world might be saved through Him. Don't you see? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the ultimate fulfillment of the bronze serpent. This cursed thing, and let me make no mistake, the cross was a cursed thing. Even from the mouths of those who lived back in the days when crucifixion was actually taking place. Let me read you just a couple of of quotes from Seneca and from Josephus. I see crosses there, not just of one kind, but many in many different ways. Some have their victims with head down to the ground. Some, instead of impaling their sides, get impaled in their private parts. Others stretch out their arms on the gibbet and suffocate. It is a dreadful thing. While a crucifixion was an execution, it was also a humiliation. It made the condemned as vulnerable as possible. Although artists have traditionally depicted the figure on a cross with a loincloth or a covering of the genitals, the person being crucified was usually stripped naked and sometimes suffered a spear upward through their genitals instead of their rib cage just to humiliate them. And in a Roman style crucifixion, the, the condemned would take up to a few days to die, but the death was sometimes hastened by human action because the Roman guards could not leave the site until the victim had died. So they were known to precipitate death by means of deliberate fracturing of their legs, by a spear stab, wounding their heart, by sharp blows to the front of their chest, or building a fire at the foot of their cross to asphyxiate them. The person was often deliberately kept alive as long as possible to prolong their suffering and humiliation as a sign of shame and as a deterrent to the masses who would see. Corpses of the crucified were typically left on the crosses to decompose and be eaten by animals. The cross of Jesus Christ was a dreadful curse. It was meant for the most heinous of criminals. The sinners of sinners. The most vile or the most 
oppressed and weak, the slaves. That was God's design. The cross of Jesus Christ was God's strange design. The curse became the cure. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And He made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Why something so disgusting, so wretched, so torturous, so cruel? Perhaps because like the serpent, it's a living picture of the reality and consequence of of sin on full display. It's the full color idea of what sin actually is. It is not isolated. It is not insignificant. And that cursed thing is our only hope for a cure. And when He's lifted up, brothers, the one who dies on it takes our sin on His behalf, doesn't He? But that's not it. The one who dies on it offers to us freedom and fullness of life. What's your responsibility? To turn and gaze at Him. It's a strange thing to have the cross at the center of our religion. A device of torture. Could you imagine us wearing a chair of execution around our neck? But it's not so strange when seen through God's perspective. Because that cursed, dreaded thing is the cure for everything that ails us. Some of us need to turn our eyes to it for the first time. Some of us for the fifth time. Some of us for the hundredth time. But one thing's for sure. We all need to turn our eyes and gaze at that dreadful, beautiful, wondrous cross. Let me pray. Father, we pray to You now and ask that we would take our sin seriously, myself included, not so that we might be condemned, but so we might turn our eyes to the magnificent cure that You've given us. It is a strange design. Lord Jesus, we give You thanks that You died in our place. You lived the life that we couldn't live and You died the death that we should have died so that we might have the life that You offer for those who turn to You in faith. Lord, I pray for freedom for myself and any other brethren here who has been gripped by sin, not in an isolated or insignificant way, but in a powerful, patternistic way. And if there's someone who needs to be free, I pray that this would be the day that that begins. Help them to turn their eyes towards You. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.